come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. Welcome, listeners, to episode 186 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, I'm your tour guide here of David Garrett Jr., recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And in this episode here for you is going to be my Traverse of the Threes number nine. And for this episode here, I have for you this one. I was really struggling to see what 2023 film I was going to be watching. And I end up selecting Project Wolf Hunting. This one technically coming out last year, but it's getting its wide release here this year. But I'm also going to pair this up with, from 1933, Narcotic. I guess you could kind of say we have, like, different looks at criminals here, as well as maybe a little bit of drug use. Not on the most traditional sense in the former, but definitely in the latter. And then also on this episode here for you, I have many reviews of Scream 6. Gave that a rewatch with Jamie in prep for, you know, doing a year-end list and everything. Wanted to give that one a second watch. I gave The Birds a watch as well as Jamie and I watched that. That's my Traverse of the Threes movie. I also did some summer series prep with The Witch from 1966. Gappa, the Trifibian Monster, as well as a Watermill. And then I also gave a watch to Becky as I'm trying to watch the sequel. I'll get into that later, but that would be the last mini-review here. So I don't think there's anything else I need to get you up to speed with here. So what I will say then is thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. Journey with a Cinephile. And for my first mini-review is going to be Scream 6. This was from this year, 2023. This is co-directed between Matt Bentinelli Olpin and Tyler Gillette. This is written by James Vanderbilt and Guy Busick, while being based on characters by Kevin Williamson. This stars Melissa Barra, Jenna Ortega, and Courtney Cox. This is a horror mystery thriller film that is from a co-production of the United States and Canada. Currently sit on a 6.7 on IMDb and a 3.7 on Letterboxd with our synopsis being, the survivors of the last Ghostface killings leave Woodsboro behind and start a fresh chapter in New York City. So this one, if you want to hear a featured review, I'm going to direct you to episode 176, which was my St. Patrick's Day number four, which featured this as well as Leprechaun 5 in the hood as the double feature over there. I believe my was toting that one as a franchise double feature even though they're not the same franchise but this one 
I ended up watching it because Jamie couldn't see this in the theater with me, so we watched this together, and what I will say is that I do enjoy this one. I like it better than the previous one, especially when I was leaving. Upon the second time around, though, I know what my issue is with this franchise. I've heard Scream fans state that you can no longer make Sydney the killer and you can't kill her off either. Now, she's not in this one, of course, and that would be Nev Campbell. The whole reasoning there is that this is one of the longer slasher series that protects its legacy characters. I hate this. They use it to say that because of its length of movies, it sets it apart. Agreed, it does. My problem is that this franchise pulls its punches. My second watch, as I said, was with my wife, and she assumed certain characters were dead. And then during the ending, we see that isn't the case. I just hate this. It doesn't work for me. I think you need to kind of pull that back a bit as this is a good movie. And I enjoy what this one is doing where we have, you know, focusing more on these younger characters and I would be fine if we continued to follow, like, our character of Sam and Tara, who are Bara and Ortega, respectively. How they handle those characters is good. I just feel like it pulls its punches at times when it comes to killing some of them, because you can't keep bringing this many characters into every single one. This movie does go brutal, though. There is a story here that makes sense to me, and I like what they're doing to incorporate the previous movies. I think the acting is solid across the board, though. If I have an issue, it just gets cringy at times with some of the dialogue. I think I still have this on the upper end of the franchise, though, and I would recommend watching this if you're a fan of the series. This one is still hovering in my top 10. It might end up falling out if we keep getting some better movies that keep coming out, but we shall see by the end of the year. So my rating here for Scream 6 is going to be, once again, an 8 out of 10, and I'll direct you over to that other episode if you want to hear a bit more of my thoughts. And then for my second mini-review is going to be The Birds from 1963, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, written by Evan Hunter, and this comes from the story by Daphne D. Maurier. I think that's how you'd say that. This is starring Rod Taylor, Tippi Hedren, and Jessica Tandy. This is a drama horror mystery romance film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 7.6 on IMDb and a 3.7 on Letterboxd with our synopsis being a wealthy San Francisco socialite pursues a potential boyfriend to a small northern California town that slowly takes a turn for the bizarre when birds of all kinds suddenly begin to attack people. So this is one that at least one of my parents introduced me to. I know for a fact when it came out it terrified my father. Since that first watch, I've seen this one quite a few times, including at the Gateway Film Center. My most recent one was with my wife, Jamie, as we I have it on 4K, and I wanted to make it as a reverse to the three since she seemed intrigued in checking this one out. So this is one that I loved growing up. The concept terrified me for the fact that there are so many birds, not just around us every day, but in the world. If they decided to do what they do in this one, it would be a lot of trouble. They outnumber us, and when they attack by force, the bigger birds could do some damage. My viewing in the theater, I left a bit disappointed, so I will come back to this kind of idea here shortly. So another thing that is scary is that we never know why they're actually doing it. The people in this can't make sense of it. Since they're not actually getting continually attacked or anything like that, they're just coming in waves. Mitch, who is portrayed by Taylor, points out that they flock together, attack, and then leave. And then they repeat this pattern. The other people in this town are scared by not knowing, and I can't blame them. That's terrifying. They even go as far to say that it's Melanie's fault because it all started when she got there, and I should say this character is portrayed by Tippi Hedren. I could buy that this, you know, when you're starting to become hysterical, it is fitting just for kind of human nature to act that way. Now, since I brought up our two leads, the love story is where I'll go next, as that's a big focal point here. Now, from the beginning, we see that Melanie and Mitch have a connection. I really think that Hitchcock did a good job at developing this relationship. They don't fall for each other immediately. They bump heads, and it seems natural to build. Something I really noticed in these last couple of viewings is the development of these characters as well. 
we get scenes where there are birds in the background. Now, characters may or may not notice them, but we as a viewer do. It is another way that Hitchcock builds tension and makes him the master of suspense. This is more of a character study where the birds attack are kind of just bringing the characters together. Now, it isn't just these two, though. I was telling Jamie during the watch that this is better than I remembered. I used to have issues with how much this kind of slows down as it's building these people. It was during this watch that it makes more sense. Now, Mitch looks down on Melanie. She digs it, though, in a way, but she also wants to prove him wrong. Now, we have Lydia, who is portrayed by Tandy, who is Mitch's mother, and she's struggling because her husband has passed away. She looks to Mitch as a replacement of sorts. Now, she also needs to approve whomever Mitch sees, whether it is officially set up that way or not. There's also Kathy, portrayed by a young Veronica Cartwright. Then we have Annie Hayworth, portrayed by Suzanne Plachette. The later dated Mitch and her talks with Melanie are interesting. Now, since the important characters have been brought up, let me go through the performances. Now, Taylor is great as our hero. It's the most interesting is his interactions with Lydia. Now, she is broken and hard on him, but he can disarm her without making problems. He keeps his cool. Now, Hedron is beautiful and becomes a great damsel in distress. My problem, though, is that she is built up to be a main character. During the climax, she goes catatonic, and we see Mitch taking over. I didn't care for this shift. I think that it's more of the era, though. Now, Tandy is solid as the mother. Seeing a young Cartwright is crazy. She does so well at playing hysterics without going over the top. Flechette doesn't have a lot of time on film, but when she does, she's good. She helps fill in backstory. Now, the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed. All that's left would be filmmaking. The effects is where I'll start. I thought they were well done for the time. They use superimposing images on top of each other, which works. There is a scene in the house where it doesn't look great, but it still is effective. I'm also watching this on 4K, which it does kind of highlight things as well. I do give credit for getting as many birds as I do. What I can't discredit is the cinematography. This is shot beautifully. Hitchcock also just knows how to frame a shot. What is impressive to me is the soundtrack. The music doesn't necessarily stand out, but it didn't need to. Now, there is a song that Melanie hears while waiting for Annie, who is teaching. Now, we get this somewhat cheery song the children are singing, but you also hear these birds making noises they gather in the playground. I like that build. Now, the sounds of the different birds in general here are good in helping you know make things creepier. But in, the, in conclusion, this is a solid early animals attack film. The idea of birds turning on us like they do is terrifying for how badly we're outnumbered. This is even stated in the movie itself. The story isn't overly complex, but I love that we don't know why these birds are doing this. The hysteria it causes helps build tension. The acting was good. I'd even go as far to say that it is more of a character study in seeing the relationship develop between Mitch and Melanie. This is a well-made movie from the cinematography to the soundtrack. This is a classic Hitchcock film that should be watched at least once for sure. So my rating here for The Birds, 1963 of course, is going to be a 9 out of 10 upon this, actually my last couple viewings of this movie. Then up next I'm going to go a little bit lighter on my recap with it as it's going to be potential summer series prep as I have The Witch. This goes by the original title of La Strega in Amore. This is from 1966. It was directed by Daminio Damini. This was written between Ugo Libatori and then... Da Minia helped to also write this, and I should also say that there's some other people here. This is based on the novel Ara, written by Carlos Fuentes. The story was done by the two guys who wrote it, and then it looks like G. Felta Ranelli also was the editor of the novel, being credited as well. This stars Richard Johnson, Rosanna Schafino, and Gian Maria Volententi. This is a horror mystery film that is from Italy. 
currently sitting on a 6.5 on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd with our synopsis being, a womanizing author is lured to a mansion by an old woman under the guise of working as a librarian. Her daughter, Ara, appears out of nowhere and seduces him. Little does he know the truth of what is happening. So this is a movie that I learned about by doing some prep here for the Summer Challenge series, as I was saying. I did a search of the highest rated horror films from 66, and this one popped up on that list. The title intrigued me, as I'm a fan of which movies. So other than that, I didn't know what this one was going to be, aside from looking up to find where I could watch it. And I was excited to see that this was from Italy. So... This is one that has an interesting tone. I'm going to go a little bit lighter as I'm saying for this, but it's a modern gothic film. The setting is in the present, or that's how I read it, but the place that Sergio have this potential new job is kind of some more gothic feels. There's a bunch of these different bookshelves just full of stuff, and then they're kind of wanting him to you know work there. This is a surreal, dreamlike feel, and the Italians just know what they're doing there as we have this like sleazy Sergio, who I should say is portrayed by Johnson. Now he's seeing Lorna, portrayed by Margareti Guzanati, but he immediately falls for R, who's portrayed by Chefanino. Now, I should also say that this, like, when she goes there, he doesn't meet her at first. He meets her mother, or that's who we're supposed to think it is at first, of Consuelo Lorenti, portrayed by Sarah Ferretti. Now, this has a lot of feel, like, the people behind the Love Witch might have watched this and kind of incorporated elements there. I should also say that Sergio has a wandering eye. Ara is beautiful enough, but she knows how to use her sexuality to seduce him. You could read this as there isn't a supernatural element to it, that it's just Ara knows what she's doing as she pits these two men who are Fabrizio and Sergio, and I should say that Fabrizio is portrayed by Valenti. So I think there is a witch here. I think that what we're getting here is... There's an element that I don't want to spoil, but there's an aspect of Ara and Consuelo. Like, we don't really get to see them together, so they might be the same person, just a spell is being used and everything like that. The Italian title for this is actually The Witch in Love. Now, we also kind of get that they use their sexuality as a weapon, and they're pitting, as I said, Fabrizio against Sergio, but then there's another thing that kind of happens with Ivan Rasimov, which is kind of fun to see an early movie with him. The acting here is interesting, as we have Johnson, who he plays such a different character in The Haunting, which I also came out the same year, I believe. So it's kind of good to see his performance. Shafino is gorgeous, and I think she fits her role. Valenti was good as a mirror to Sergio. Ferenti is good as his mastermind. I just think the acting is solid in general. I think this is a well-made movie. I just really love the atmosphere. It's so surreal, and I think the cinematography helps there. We also have that gothic feel of the building that they live in. Soundtrack was fine for what was needed. I do have an issue, though, with the pacing. I think this could have been trimmed by, like, 15 minutes and just ran tighter. I don't think this is the best gothic Italian movie out there that I've seen, but I think it's an interesting one. We get a surreal and gothic feel from the film set in a modern setting. The acting of Johnson, Shafino, and Freddy is good. The rest of the cast rounds us out for what was needed. This is also well made. The only gripe that I have is that it runs too long. I'd recommend it to fans of these type of movies or ones from the era, as I think it's a solid film. So I'm not going to give my rating here just because it could be a summer series pick, but I do recommend giving this one a watch, and this again is The Witch from 1966. And then my next mini review is going to be Gappa, the Trihibian Monster. It goes by the original title of De Yoju Gappa. This is from 1967. This was directed by Hiroshi Noguchi. It was written by Iwo Yamazaki and Ryuzo Nakaishi. 
And I also believe we have some other people here. Let me pull this up real quick here, and I'm just stalling for time. And it looks like the English dialogue was done by William Ross, and the story was by Akira Wanatabi. This stars Taimio, Kawaji, Yoko Yamamoto, Yuji Odaka. This has a lot of genres associated with it. It's an action-adventure, comedy, drama, family, fantasy, horror, sci-fi, thriller. Might explain why some things. This is from Japan. Currently sitting on a 4.3 on IMDb and a 2.5 on Letterboxd with our synopsis being a magazine reporter, Hiroyuko Kurosaki, and his colleagues brought back to Japan a monster child who had just hatched from an egg on the isolated island of Oblisk in the South Sea. So this movie that I watched in prep for the Summer Challenge series on the podcast Under the Stairs, it's funny though is I decided to watch this one as another films that I had lined up were not streaming where I thought they were. I was looking for another movie in my collection and found this one that I'd also owned and I didn't even remember getting it. I decided to go ahead and watch this since it fit what I was looking for. So this one is, since it's going to be a potential Summer Series movie, I'm going to go a little bit lighter, but this one actually I saw, I think I've realized I picked it up because it's was I thought at one point being considered a remake of Gorgo. We have very similar plot points in these like kaiju movies. I mean, you could also say this is kind of like Mothra as we have a creature that's in an egg or like a cocoon at one point or anything like that. But I mean, this also kind of falls in line with a lot of these kaiju type films. So this one is also being inspired by Gohira, which doesn't surprise me, you know, Godzilla. But this one I think is kind of interesting is that we have these group that are on way to this island where a, I believe it's President Fanuzu is out for financial gain. This character is portrayed by Kazuki Inoue. Now, there is a bit of commentary here on capitalism. Is This guy is out to do whatever he can do to make money. He sends his crew out to look at this island as he's trying to set in like a, a, a resort of sorts out there. Now, there's some natives on here who don't want these people doing what they're kind of doing here. They don't mind them being there because they were promised and they're excited to see them. But when they start meddling with this mountain as there's like this stone statue that was blocking this cave and then Gappa is a name that comes up and we learn that that's not a god according to these people, but definitely like a large monster, but they still have it in like reverence. This one, I mean, kind of feels almost like King Kong where you're bringing something from an island to the mainland for financial gain and everything like that. It's really kind of hard to look at these kaiju as being the villains here because these people meddled with them and that's why they're there. It's also kind of interesting is that these creatures are not that tall. They're, I mean, they're larger than we are and I mean, I would say they're bigger than like tanks and everything like that, but they're not nearly as tall as skyscrapers. So, you know, much smaller there. I just think this movie does a lot of things that other films in this subgenre have done better. So it's really kind of hard for me to give this one credit because it is kind of just lacking there. I think that the we have this like concept here with the military thing that can hurt them, but that's not the case. I thought the acting was fine though. Kawaji is fine as our lead. He does make some sexist comments, what makes it out of place. I would actually think the best character here is being portrayed. She's our like lady character. And she is Yamamoto. I think her character is solid. I also think Koji Wada as the boy was good. I mean, the miniature work here, I do have a soft spot for that. I do love these kaiju movies that use that. And we just have people in like a monster suit. I think other than that, this is just, it's fine. The force perspective is also good there. I also like the sound effects because these gappas are bird-like. So that's how they're trying to find the child one to try to get that back. But my problem is that this doesn't do enough to set us apart. 
it is borrowing elements from other things, just not enhancing them in my opinion. The look and the effects to bring Gap into life are good. I like the social commentary that you can pull from this since it's still relevant today. Made well enough. I just struggle to keep my attention, unfortunately. Not one that I can recommend unless you're a fan of kaiju and just like to see as many as you can. Be warned that this is from Japan, so I watch the subtitled version, but there is a dubbed one on the DVD that I do have. Not going to give my rating. Not a great movie, and I mean, I probably won't be putting this one forward if that kind of gives you any indication about what I liked. I still enjoy this movie. I do want to establish that. And then another potential summer series pick is A Watermill. goes by the original title of Muli Banga. This is from 1966, directed by... Lee Man Hee and written by Du Huang Na stars Yong Guan Jin, Ia Ko, and Jang Kang Hyo. If I mispronounce any of those, once again, I do apologize. This is a drama mystery, according to IMDb, but Letterboxd has it also as horror. This is from South Korea, currently sitting on a 6.5 on IMDb and a 3.5 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis is, a nameless drifter meets an enigmatic woman at the watermill during Chosun times. What follows is a tale of deadly sins with hints of the supernatural. Another one that I discovered when looking for horror films from 66 and prep for the Summer Challenge series. What is interesting is that this is one of the highest rated according to Letterboxd. I was able to find a subtitled copy on YouTube, so I gave that one a watch. But, again, going to light on this one is... It, this one, I don't necessarily know if it's horror. I'll get into that here in a minute, but I think it's included due to supernatural elements. So we have this main character of Bang Wan, portrayed by Shin, and then he falls in love with Giam Bun, who is portrayed by Ko. Now, I had thought at one point in this movie they were trying to say that there was a ghost living in this water mill. I guess I was actually reading up a little bit about this, is that water mills and like the water wheel thing was a place where people were having relations, so I kind of thought that was interesting. But this is more of a cautionary tale. We have Bong Wan who falls in love with Guam Bun. Now, she is almost de facto married to this rich, sickly guy. Bang Wan sells himself into slavery to buy her from this man. And I guess they kind of get married due to circumstance. But we also have this, like, property owner of Kang who sees a chance here that he ends up giving the rice to bang one and then makes him his slave in return so i guess we're kind of seeing once again here some more capitalism stuff the dangers of uncontrolled where you could actually sell yourself but i feel like the supernatural elements here is why it's a horror movie but it's hard pressed to kind of put in there i don't really think this woman's a ghost outside of that she is able to use her sexuality as a weapon but she almost does that to kind of protect herself we do have a witch of sorts and by our main character going to her, it actually kind of causes him to have a lot of bad things happen. I guess you could put this into full core because this is very like regional and it's also set in the past. The only thing it's missing there is I really kind of wish you just have like an old man telling some people who are younger about this story, like even a young couple. I do think the acting is solid. I think Shin's our best performer. And I mean, he's quite industrialist and this jovial guy who is just broken by things around him. Uh, Ko is solid as the love interest. Her character is interesting, kind of where she ends up. I can't fault her completely, but she does shoulder some of the blame. I think Kuala is good as our, you know, our villain here. I like the commentary you can draw from some of the things he does. I think this is well made. Cinematography is good. It doesn't do anything to stand out. I do like we kind of get this like regional type stuff here as well with this ritual that he walks upon when he arrives at this village as it's supposed to be an exorcism, which kind of goes back to the ghost thing. Um, but this one, just an interesting cautionary tale, as I was saying, that's still relevant. 
We have aspects of folk horror, but I don't think it goes far enough to be fully in the genre. Best part is the acting. I thought Shin, Ko, and Hua are good as our you know main people here, with the rest fitting for what was needed. I also thought this was well made. No glaring issues there, and I did want to credit how the setting and the feel of the era is set worked. Be warned that this is from South Korea from 1966. And I did have an issue with the sound, but I'm guessing all copies are that way because I actually found some trivia online about that. Again, not going to give my rating here. Probably not one I'm going to put forward either, but I did enjoy my watch here of a watermill. And for my last actual feature is going to be Becky. This is from 2020. This was directed between Jonathan Millot and Carrie Mernon. This was written between Ruckus Sky, Lane Sky, and Nick Morris. This stars Lulu Wilson, Kevin James, and Joel McHale. This is an action crime drama horror thriller film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.9 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd with the synopsis being a teenager's weekend at a lake house with her father takes a turn for the worse when a group of convicts wreaks havoc on their lives. So this movie that I remember hearing podcast cover the year that it came out, overall, most everyone seemed to be positive. There were some gripes here and there, but I didn't get a chance to watch this one during that year end roundup. I did add to a list of ones to check out, and it moved up when I saw my theater was playing the sequel, so I made it a point to check this one out first. So where I want to start is that I knew coming in that Becky fights back and that this was like an action movie of sorts. It feels like it's taking elements from like Home Alone or Predator and then setting it at a lake house. What makes this work is that we have a teenager going up against hardened criminals who are adults. She should be at a disadvantage, but works in her favor is that they underestimate her. And it's really only Dominic that has the resolve to get what he wants. I take it that the other three are content with just fleeing now that they're out of prison. Should say that Becky is portrayed by Wilson and then Dominic is portrayed by James. So that set up, let me go back to bringing up that I was comparing this to Home Alone or Predator. If anything, it's more of the latter. Once Becky decides to fight back, she sets up some traps. What I like here is that she uses things like pencils, a broken metal ruler, and other things you just find around the house or like yard supplies. What makes us think of like Home Alone is that she doesn't rely on traps necessarily, hence the other movie. But I mean, she does have some of them. I should say that still. Now the villains are male adults. When you see a girl that who I'm guessing is like 13-ish, you'd expect her not be able to, that they should be able to take her with ease. What they aren't factoring is the rage within her. She's hurt by losing her mother, even more so that this weekend that she is having with her dad is that he's actually moving on to get remarried. She is finally letting it out, and they're taking that in full force. I did want to commend Wilson, as I think she was good as this angsty teen, and I can buy when she snaps wanting revenge. Now, I think I should go over to our villains next. We have an easy route to go here by making them racist Nazis. Most everyone is going to side with our good characters. It's easy to use them for that reason, but the movie doesn't go over the top with it. There are comments from Dominique that upsets Kayla and Jeff. Should say that Jeff is portrayed by Mikhail, and then we have Kayla by Amanda Bruegel. Now, this is subtle, though. I should bring up here that I was impressed with James as I was telling my wife Jamie about this movie and she had a reaction that most everyone from the horror community did. They cast the comedian as this hardened villain. What I pointed out is that comedy and horror are based on timing. I thought James was great as our main bad guy. He did a good job at being vile and fit for what was needed. Now since I've already gone into our two stars, let me go to the rest of the cast. Mikhail is good as the father. Now, his role takes a back seat, but it's mostly kind of a crux to get us started on what we need. I also thought that Bruegel and then her son in the movie of Isaiah Rotcliffe, and he, his character's name is Ty. 
I like them as they're almost invading this family that upsets Becky while we're there, and I thought that was good. They didn't do anything wrong and kind of became victims of circumstance. Now, we also have Robert Millet, Millet, something like that. We also have Ryan McDonald and James McDougall. They're also good as the rest of our criminals. What I like is that their resolve doesn't match their boss, but they also don't like to talk back to him or go against what he's doing. I should say that Malay as Apex is the best with just his imposing size. Other than that, I thought the rest of the cast was solid for what was needed. Then all that's left to go into would be the filmmaking. I should point out that this becomes a home invasion movie when Dominique and his crew show up. It doesn't thrive there, but it just is kind of how it starts out. The cinematography is good. I like the shots that we get to set things up. I also love the editing, especially the opening sequence comparing high school to prison. The effects are good. They don't go over the top and they look to be practical. I do know there was some CGI spray blood, but that was hidden enough. Other than that, I thought the soundtrack fit. I like what it's set up here that Becky likes to sing. That plays into the movie, and then the use of walkie-talkies was good as well. So in conclusion here, I enjoyed my time. I'm a bit upset for myself for not watching it when it first came out, as it seems like a movie that might have contended for the bottom part of my top 10 of the year. We have an interesting variation on a story that we've seen before. This is a home invasion without leaning too much into that. Wilson and James are good as our leads. The rest of the cast were solid. They do good things with the effects without going over the top. I'd say this is well made. I had a lot of fun here and would recommend giving it a watch for sure. This goes for horror and non-horror fans alike. So my rating here for Becky is going to be a 7.5 out of 10. And then the last little thing I'm going to do here is I did get to watch another Twilight Zone episode and it was The Passage on the Lady Anne. This one is from 1963. This was directed by Lamont Johnson, and it was written between Charles Beaumont and Rod Serling. Stars Gladys Cooper, Wilfred Hyde-White, and Cecil Kellaway. It's got the same exact genres associated with it, so I'm not going to do that. But this one is sitting on a 7.3. The synopsis is a young American couple, the Ransones, who are trying to salvage their troubled marriage, insist on booking passage on an old transatlantic cruise liner, but the other passengers try to persuade them to disembark immediately. So this one's kind of an interesting little one that we have here, as we have Alan and Eileen, who are Lee Phillips and Joyce Van Patten. Now, they're having marital problems. Alan likes to work too much, and this is bothering his wife, so they end up making a deal. He wants to go to Europe to close on a business deal, and he also kind of wants to go to a conference, but what ends up happening is that he allows her to come along, and she gets to choose the way that they're going to get there. Now, she chooses one that's leaving soon, and it's an old ocean liner. Now, when she gets on it, we have the likes of, like, Millie McKenzie and her husband of Toby. They're Gladys Cooper and Wilfred Hyde-White. And then you also have Burgess portrayed by Cecil Kellaway. Now, the big thing here is that they want them off immediately. And it's kind of an interesting feel there as Alan will not back down on anything like that. Now, he ends up befriending some of these older people and everything like that. But there's just something not right. I kind of picked up on where this was going as why this older people want them off the ship. It's kind of a heartwarming tale because Alan and Eileen are on the close of just leaving each other. But as they're kind of hanging out with these people, they start to realize what's more important in life. And I did enjoy that. If this one wasn't as predictable as it ended up being, I probably would have rated this higher. But I still gave this one a 7 out of 10. Actually, one that I rather enjoyed despite knowing how this was going to end up. So I don't think there's anything else I need here for mini reviews. Let me get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. Hey, 
그들이 잔대가리 굴려서 빠져나가 봤자 배 아니다. 알파는 인간 진화의 새로운 형태를 제시할 것으로 보인다. 아촌스럽게 늦게 사네 뭐야. 지옥이다. 피처드 리뷰 here on this episode is going to be Project Wolf Hunting. This goes by the original title of Nuang De Sai Yang. This is technically from 2022, but it's getting its wide release here this year. This was written and directed by Hong Sun Kim. It stars Seo Ngook, Dong Yoon Jang, and Jung So Min, while also featuring Gwai Ha Choi. Dong Il Song, Park Ho San, Chang Siok Ko, Jang Young Nam, Sung Jang Hak, Lee Sung Wook, Moon Sung Jung, Ji Su Hong, Ji Hai An, Richard Barcinas, Park Bong Joon, Kim Chang Hoang, Kim Ji Chang, and Alice Hamora. So if I mispronounce any of those names, I do apologize. This is an action crime horror sci-fi film that is from South Korea. This is currently sitting on a 6.1 on IMDb and a 3.1 on Letterboxd. With our synopsis being, follows dangerous criminals on a cargo ship who are transported from the Philippines to South Korea as they unleash a sinister force after an escape attempt leads to a riot. So this is a movie that I heard about from some fellow podcast listeners in a Discord group that I'm in. They were talking about if this one would be considered a 2023 release or not. I was kind of going through it, and it, I saw that it you know, had a limited showing and everything like that, but its wide release was here this year, and they were pretty high on it. I put on a list of movies to check out for this year. Since I couldn't make it to the Gateway Film Center, I decided to give this a watch as a featured review here. So before I get into the movie itself, let me do some featured notes to some of the key people, and I'll start with the director of Kim. He has helmed six films, and I've seen two. The first was an interesting Exorcist-style one called Metamorphosis from 2019. I rather enjoyed that one. Now, in horror, he has two, and I've seen them both now. 
As a writer, he has three. This is the only one I've seen and in genre. This is going to be a common theme here. Then over to our cast, I'll start with Seal, who has 17 movies. I've just seen this one. Now, it looks like this person might have started out originally doing K-pop music. This is their debut in genre. Then over to Jang. He also has 17 films. I've only ever seen this one. Again, only one in horror. Then lastly, I'll look at Ho San. He has 37 credits. I've only ever seen this one and the only one they've done in genre as well. So let's get into this movie here. And we start by learning out that there were 47 criminals that fled from South Korea to the Philippines to avoid being prosecuted. The police forces in both locations work together and they're now being extradited. Things don't go as planned when the victim of one of the criminals detonates a bomb at the airport, now killing the criminal themselves and injuring those at the airport, killing some other people as well. It then shifts to 2022. They're trying to bring more of these criminals back to Korea. They've decided that secretly they're going to hold them on a sea freighter and get them over that way. We are hearing about it on the news, so we know there's a leak of sorts. The detective in charge of maintaining order during this journey are on the ship and everything like that so they have a lot of precautions in place doesn't look like it's going to let me get into that shortly there are a lot of characters and this moves at a fast pace i believe that it's lee Suk woo portrayed by hosan who is in charge the worst of the bunch is park jong doon portrayed by in gook these two buttheads to the point where Seok woo beats him while others watch now Laws against police brutality seem to be suspended due to where they are and what they're trying to do to keep them in line for this journey. So when everyone is loaded onto the freighter and it seems like they have a good plan to get to Korea without issue. That's not the case though. The staff that helps prepare meals are seem to be planted there. There's a cache of weapons that are used to help free the prisoners. They then go about cutting off communication with the outside world and trying to turn off the tracking equipment. We are then reduced to a small group of detectives, including Seok Woo and Lee Don Yuan, portrayed by So Min. We also have a couple of criminals that are helping them, not wanting to fall in line with the more vicious ones. Now we have Lee Do Il, portrayed by Jang, who is one of the persons of interest for Interpol and is you know part of this smaller group as well. Just wanted to point him out. Now, there's something much worse in this voyage, though. Now, there's a doctor, I believe he's portrayed, or his name is Sun Su Chol, portrayed by Sun Jong Hak, who has another job. He goes into the bowels of this freighter, and there's a figure known as Alpha, portrayed by Choi, and this doctor gives him a sedative. Now, there's a director, Poi, portrayed by Zhu Hun Lim, knows more than he's letting on. There also seems to be some higher ups pulling the strings. When the riots happen, blood falls on Alpha. When this monster is awake, no one is safe. So that's where I'm going to leave my recap and attempt to introduce the characters. Now, when you settle into this movie, we get close to the action, you know, picking up. It doesn't necessarily matter anymore. They are mostly here for cannon fodder and body count. I'll just go ahead and get into the effects as well then. What we get here is over the top by design. There is a lot of blood and violence. It looks good though. It looked to be done practical, which I can, you know, I'm always behind that. If there was CGI, it worked seamlessly. I had a lot of fun watching these people get wrecked by criminals and then this monster of a man. Now, with that out of the way, let me get over to the story here. The event that gets us on the freighter is good. I like that we have these criminals escaping to another country, only to have them caught and then trying to be extradited. I love movies set on a boat, so it not only contains a story, but also ramps up tension because it's not easy to, you know, get away. I also like that we have our police officers who are good. The original villains are the criminals. There are members of this group who are vicious. 
That is until we meet Alpha, and it gets even crazier from there. Now, then to break this down even farther, this is a mashup film at the heart. We have elements of a crime action movie. Just having these criminals riding on the ship and a small group of detectives fighting back works. We then mix mad scientists, sci-fi stuff in with Alpha. You could even say, like, this is like a what-if with a Michael Myers or Jason Voorhees killer in an action movie. It almost kind of feels a little bit like um, Silent Rage. I believe that's the Chuck Norris movie where that's a slasher of sorts where you just have Chuck Norris trying to fight this mindless, super strong killer. Now, surprisingly, I think this works well. My only problem comes with the sci-fi stuff is I don't necessarily like the larger implications or reveals with other characters. That feels forced and isn't as shocking as I want it to be. Now, part of this could be the length. For the most part, I don't feel the runtime. This runs just over two hours long. What is interesting is that I'd say about the hour mark or so is when the you know Riot and Alpha wake up. I was wondering what they would do with the time left because it doesn't take that long for people just to get decimated. I do like going into the past to give more background about the experiment. That should be kept in. I just think there's about 15 minutes I'd be can you know trim for this to run tighter. I will just finish with the filmmaking then. The cinematography is good with the framing and how it's shot. I think that helps with the effects and that makes it look better. Other than that, the soundtrack worked for what was needed. Big part there is I love the sound effects to help confirm that Alpha is the monster that he is. So what's left then before I do some trivia is going to be the acting. I think that everyone fits their characters and what is needed for them. Ingook is good as our main villain. I love the tattooed look for him as he just looks menacing with how vicious he is. He's one of the best characters here. Jang is solid as this brooding criminal who isn't as bad as we actually realize. His character is layered and it gets updated as we go. Then we also have like So Min, Hosan, and the rest of the detectives are good. Choi is great as our overpowered monster. Other than that, I'd say the criminals might be a bit too much of caricatures, but I don't mind it. We don't really have a bad performance here at all, in my opinion. So then, just a bit of trivia here is according to the director, 2.5 tons of blood were used throughout the production of this film. I believe that. The official body count is 57, as per the director's confirmation. There's the flashback scene from 1943 where there's a digital vital sign machine operating in the surgery. These machines didn't exist in this form until the 40s. So, I mean, I guess it could work there. It kind of almost seems like they're trying to say it's a goof, but maybe it's just trying to confirm that this would be possible. And then also, in Germany, despite being released in theaters with the not under 18 rating by the FSK due to their guidelines being a little more strict on home video than in theaters, rather than cut the movie to retain the 18 rating, distributor Caplight Pictures decided to release the movie on Blu-ray in Germany without the light SPIO JK rating instead. Not really sure what some of those abbreviations mean. So then, in conclusion, I'm glad that I took the recommendation to watch this. We have a mashup of different movies. Not all of it works, and it runs a bit too long, but that's not to say that this isn't fun, because it's a blast. The blood and the violence goes over the top, which works. The acting is good across the board. I'd also say this is a well-made movie. You know, just trimming back some of the extra elements and condensing the runtime, I think that would help here. What we get, I'd... Just kind of recommend this if you like action horror movies. Be warned that this is from South Korea, so I watch it with subtitles on. And this is one that I'm going to try to see if I can fit in a rewatch for, because right now this is pretty close to my top 10. So my rating here for Project Wolf Hunting is going to be an 8 out of 10. I don't think I need to do any spoiler section or anything like that, as I do want people to check this movie out. So let me get over to the trailer of my second featured review. Tell me before, so I wouldn't have depended on you. 
How did I know my connection was going to be knocked off? If I don't get a pop right away, I'll go nuts. Say, do you know next week when I go there to be an actress, I'm going to have 52 maids. That's enough, Lena. Now you're beginning to lie. I give you a cigar. Would you promise to smoke it in some part of the Medicine whose ingredients nature placed in the earth long before the beast of Bruce stepped forth from his cave, shook the mud off his back, stood on his hind legs, and declared himself mad. for my second featured review is going to be Narcotic. This is from 1933. It was directed, co-directed actually, between Dwayne Esper and Vival Sodart. I think that's how you'd say that name. This is written between A.J. Carnop and Hildegardi Standi. And then this is starring Harry Cording, Joan Dix, Patricia Farley, as well as... Gene Lacey, J. Stewart Blackton Jr., Paul Panzer, Miami Alvarez, Charles Bennett, Yosef Swickart, Herman Hack, Celia McCann, Fred Parker, Philip Sleeman, Standy as well appears in this, and then Blackie Whiteford. This is a biography drama horror film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 4.0 on IMDb and a 2.3 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis being, Exploration film which follows a downward spiral of an idealistic medical student whose fall from grace leads from opium dens, a carnival freak show, swanky drug parties, dingy brothels, and finally a realization of his decisions. I did alter that a little bit because I feel like it went into spoilers and I don't want to give away the ending to this movie even though, let me get into it a little bit, but like, I mean, even though this is almost 90 years old, but regardless. This one that I found when I was looking for horror from 1933, the title intrigued me as I didn't know what we'd be getting 
since I knew it would be like an early drug dealing movie potentially, just with the title, but I came in this one blind aside from knowing the year and that it was in genre. I did notice that Cording starred, and I just watched him in The Intruder, as that came out in the same year as well. So then let me get into some of the featured notes for some of these people here, and I'll start with our directors, and the first one will be Esper. He directed 11 films. I've only ever seen this one. It looks like he focused on propaganda films, as he has another one in genre with Maniac from 1934, which I had not heard of. This guy also had one that was involving like marijuana, so kind of a weird little thing. Is I think that's what he kind of focused on. Then over to his co-director of Sodart. This is their only feature. Over to the writers. I did see that Standy wrote this, and it seems to be loosely based off a family member. And I'll get into that when I get into some trivia. But this person wrote seven films. I've only ever seen this one. It did look like they worked with Esper on Maniac as well, the only two in genre. Then the other writer is Carnop. This is their only credit. Then moving over to our cast, I'll start with Cording. I've seen 12 of their 173 films. Now, not in horror, they did The Grapes of Wrath from 1940. In genre, he did 12. I've seen 11. I did watch The Intruder from the same year, of course. I've also seen Black Cat from 34. He did a run with Universal with Son of Frankenstein, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, The Invisible Man Returns, The Wolfman, The Ghost of Frankenstein, The Mummy's Tomb, The Strange Door, and Abbott Cancelo meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde as well as this. I've seen all of these. The only one that I haven't as of yet is Bluebeard from 1944. Then his co-star of Dicks has four movies. The only one I've seen and the only one in genre. Then last is Farley. She did eight. I've only ever seen this. And the only one that they did in horror. So, as I said, I did clear up the synopsis a bit as it spoils the ending. But this is an early propaganda film about drug prevention and, and like um, drug addiction and preventing it. It, war it warns us from the opening text that a medical student from the synopsis becomes a successful snake oil salesman. His name is Dr. William G. Davis, who is portrayed by Cording. This is also supposedly based in fact. Upon watching it, I'm sure there are plot points here that mirror real people or things that did happen. And like I said, I'll get into that a bit more with trivia. Now we see William that he is still a med student. He hangs out with a few guys and one of them is G. Woo, portrayed by Blackton. This is a racist take on someone from Asia, and he introduces William to an opium den. What I find interesting here is that we get a look at American and Western culture. Now, G states that in Asia, they're able to use opium regularly and like recreationally, but not become fully addicted. There are those that do, but for the most part, they're like use it as a release. Now, in America, they get hooked, and this is a warning to the viewer to stay away from these dens. Now, it's from here that William becomes addicted. He doesn't think that he is and that he can stop whenever, which is, you know, the classic addictive personality type thing in the, you know, classic addict mantra. There is a vibe here of the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde with William working at a free clinic. He doesn't make a lot of money, though. He is striving to buy a gold locket, but he can't afford it. He gets the idea to use opium to create a tonic, and he's watching like a peddler, and it makes him realize that he might be able to find the right way to market it and sell it himself. Now, without going through each of the points from the synopsis again, William is hurt in a car accident, and that gets him hooked back on opium. There's also a driver that crashes with him in the vehicle. Now, this driver is an addict, according to newspaper headlines. Now, William lives an interesting life from a, you know, from being with a circus, and he scores dope from a guy there. He also hangs out with the likes of Lena, portrayed by Lacey, as well as May, portrayed by Farley, and her friends, as they all do different things as well. And they use different drugs at this party and whatnot, and it'll show us the effects of living his life this way. So that's really my recap and introduction to the story. Where I want to start is the tone. 
This is absolutely a propaganda film a la like Reefer Madness. What I'll give credit here is that I've seen the effects on heroin has on people, so this is much closer to being realistic. I didn't bring up that there is a couple more tech screens that we get. One is stating that a drug party we see in this film is something that most don't get to. We are being able to where people have gotten clean and then relaying what they experienced. I bring this up as they're using like heroin pills and like smoking marijuana cigarettes. This goes quite heavy handed with its message and at least it's closer to form though. With that set up, let me get over to whether this is horror or not. It isn't in the traditional sense. We don't get murders or monsters or anything like that to the effect that you'd normally get, especially for this era. What we do though is we get to see more of like horrors of humanity and our decisions. The horror is drug addiction here. What is interesting is that this movie portrays it as fun at first. That is until the bill comes due and you must pay. What I will say is that it doesn't end well for William. Do not come in expecting horror as we know it today. This is more of a cautionary tale. Now there isn't much more I can go into the story, so let me go over to the acting. This isn't very good. It is stiff. And I'm not going to go through each person to see if they acted a lot or not, but I mean, the people that I've already given to you outside of courting doesn't look like they have a lot of credits. I do think that him as our lead, though, was fine. We see him go through some different things, and that works. Other than that, I thought that, like, Dick's fairly lacy and the rest of the cast were fine. It can be stiff. I don't know if it does the best at conveying the effects of what they're trying to do. And I actually probably should say this acting group probably worked with this director a lot. The gravity is there, but it comes off comical to me. I did want to give credit to Blackton. It is a racist portrayal to have him play in this character of Jiwoo, but I did like that they gave him more to work with than others, though. This is a Western way of looking at things, though, as well. Now, all that's left for some trivia would be filmmaking. I don't think this is particularly strong either. The cinematography is fine. The different set pieces we see are good. It is an interesting path that William goes along. The message is too heavy-handed, though, to the point where watching it today made me laugh. We don't get a lot in the way of effects, but this feels like a docudrama, like more than that, than an actual movie, so that's part of it. The soundtrack didn't also stand out or hurt this either. So then let me do a little bit of trivia then that I keep alluding to. The film includes an appearance by Elmer McCurdy, an Oklahoma would-be bank robber who was killed in 1911, and also his embalmed body circulated through various sideshow, fun houses, and amusement parks for over 60 years. McCurdy's body was not only used as that of a drug addict in this film but was also put on display by esper at screens of the movie mccurdy was eventually discovered in a long beach funhouse in 77 by a film crew for the tv series the six million dollar man and he's returned to oklahoma for proper burial i actually have a give shout out here to dr shock as i don't i believe it was on jay's new horror movies he went through and talked about this and it's kind of wild that i end up running into the movie that kind of featured him in it and everything like that so then writer Standy based the script on true events. She had gone on tour with her great uncle as a little girl when he worked the medicine show circuit selling the elixir tiger fat. The film is actually considered to be a very accurate and unexaggerated telling of his life, which is crazy. The suicide note seen in the beginning of this is addressed to Dwayne, apparently the film's producer and director Esper. The note is in Esper's handwriting and it may be his hand bringing it towards the camera. There's a cameo by Standy as the film's author appears as an extra seated in Davies' waiting room. An item published in Variety on June 13, 33 stated that this film had just started shooting after an eight-month pre-production period, which seems pretty long for a movie from this era. But in conclusion, 
this isn't a good movie. I think it has a good message that it wants to convey, but it doesn't translate as well for modern viewers. It might have been for the 30s, though. The acting is stiff. Cording and Blackton were the two best performances, despite my issue with the casting of the latter. This is made fine. It's lacking there as well. This just isn't horror in the traditional sense either. It is more of a cautionary tale. I can't recommend this unless you want to laugh at what this tries to do. So my rating here for Narcotic is going to be a 4.5 out of 10. Don't need to do a spoiler section or anything like that, so let me get you over to one last break before I close out the show. I would like to welcome you back, and then just to close everything out here, if you'd like to send me an email with any sort of feedback or anything that you'd like to have right on the show, you can send me that email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. If there's anything that you send me you don't want right on the show, just let me know in that email. If you'd like to read any of the reviews from anything on this episode or any of the past episodes, that's horrorreview.webnode.com. If you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, I'm David Mishkin Garrett Jr., on Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. And over there, I'll be posting all of the reviews of anything that I'm watching that is horror or non-horror alike. If you'd like to follow my Instagram page, that's David OSU87. If you'd like to follow the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram, that's Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. What I will be posting over there is on both of them the movie posters of anything that I am reviewing. And if you follow my personal one, every now and then you might see some personal pictures if I ever post any because I tend to forget while I'm out and about. And just to make it easier on you, I'll have all of those links in the show notes. And then the last thing I'd ask you to do is that whatever podcatching device you're listening to me on, if you could go ahead and hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode, that would be greatly appreciated. Also, if you're able to rate and review just so I can figure out what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like, as well as to get out to more listeners out there as well. And then for my next episode, I have going to be another Traverse of the Three. It's going to be the number 10 for that one. And I don't know how well this is going to pair up, but I'm going to go to the Gateway Film Center to watch Wrath of Becky at some point this weekend, as well as I'm going to pair that up with, from 1933, a serial film called The Whispering Shadow. I believe this actually features Bella Lugosi. This might actually work out well as... I think the latter is a murder mystery of sorts, where I, the former one I know is probably going to be a bloody type revenge film, just a little bit different. Not really sure. I haven't watched any of the trailers or anything like that or read up on it. I just saw that it was coming out and knew I needed to watch the original one, which I did earlier here. I digress. I'll also be watching, if I watch it by myself, it's going to be Torso for my Traverse of the Threes from 1973. I'm going to try to see if I can get my wife to watch The Exorcist, which would trump that movie, and then I would just have it go on the next one. Regardless, don't worry about that. I will have a older movie for there. I'll also be watching more summer series prep and whatever else I can watch in the horror genre. So I don't think there's anything else I need to get you up to speed with here. So I will say in closing is thank you so much for listening. Whatever you do today, I hope you're safe and doing have a great time out there. This is your tour guide of David Garrett Jr., and I am signing off. It had been a wonderful evening. And what I needed now to give it the perfect ending. <laughs>